It's Monday, June 11th, and this is The Daily Dive. Tensions were high as the president met with world leaders at the G7 summit to talk trade and other economic issues. At the end of the day, President Trump decided not to sign on to a joint statement with the other world leaders as administration officials were accusing Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau of stabbing him in the back. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us to give us all the G7 details and preview the other big meeting with North Korea. After the high-profile suicides of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, mental health experts are concerned about something called suicide contagion. The concern is how extensive news coverage might impact or trigger those struggling with thoughts of suicide. We will speak to Melissa Etihad from the LA Times for more on this. Finally, we will speak to Sarah Krauss, reporter for the Wall Street Journal, about those pesky robocalls. Even if you don't answer the phone, they are still making money off of you. Sarah will walk us through the process scammers use to make money and what we can do to fight back. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. And then we leave and Trudeau pulls this sophomoric political stump for domestic consumption. He really kind of stabbed us in the back. He really actually, you know what? He did a great disservice to the whole G7. It's a betrayal. Okay, essentially double crossing. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. There's a ton of stuff to unpack. The G7 summit happened. President Trump is in Singapore to have his meeting with Kim Jong-un of North Korea. Let's start at the G7. There was a lot of tensions. Things were very high. The group decided to all sign on to a communique expressing uh, a joint statement about trade and, and working together. And then uh, the president decided to back out at the last second. What happened? There seems little doubt that Trump's honeymoon with the world stage is over. Lots of world leaders that had been delicately handling him are now starting to show that their patience has expired. He went to this G7 summit. It should have been and normally is a coming together of America's strongest allies the largest economies in the world, people who we normally get along with very well. And instead, it was tense and it was uncomfortable. And that was entirely attributed to Donald Trump. We saw what is really possibly going to be one of the most iconic images of Donald Trump's presidency coming out of this meeting. This photo, which was released by German Chancellor Angela Merkel's office, that shows her staring Donald Trump down as he sat there with his arms crossed, looking defiant. The internet it, sort of compared it to a child refusing to eat their vegetables at dinner. <laughs> it is a pretty remarkable picture. He's the only one sitting down, at least in that picture there. And Angela Merkel's uh, leaning over the table, like you said, looking at him, trying to get some type of feedback or something, and he's not having any of it. They made this joint statement about coming together. Trade is very much at the heart of this. And uh, Canadian Prime Minister uh, Justin Trudeau, after, made a statement saying, you know, we're still going to be strong. We're still going to implement tariffs on the United States because they're implementing tariffs on us. And that's what got President Trump angry and decided to pull out of that communique. That's right. The business community had hoped, much like Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, that this meeting would 
convinced Donald Trump to back down off of some of the tariffs he had imposed in the last two weeks on America's allies, on the nation's friends, under the argument that there was a national security risk. And they thought that he would go to this meeting and that Trudeau and Merkel and other EU leaders would convince him to back down and change his mind. And instead, he seems poised to dig back in. And Justin Trudeau put a statement out where he said at the end of the meeting that the Canadians were still going to respond with their own tariffs to the U.S. And that made Donald Trump so mad that he pulled out of the joint statement, which was really a nebulous statement to begin with. It kind of made broad general statements that the U.S. and its allies would work together on trade and didn't even have any specific commitments in it. Yeah, and there was very strong words coming out of the president's team. Uh, Larry Kudlow, one of his economic advisors, accused the prime minister of stabbing the United States in the back. He was saying he was trying to undermine him right before he was going into his summit with uh, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. There's a lot of tensions here, and the president's allies, our staff, especially folks like Kudlow, like John Bolton, who were there, very hawkish, very aggressive to even our allies, hoping that this North Korea summit, which the president arrived at Sunday, uh, can be a success. This would be a real win for the White House that has had a hard time scoring any wins in the first year and a half in office. And they see any effort of any disagreement to be an effort to undermine their wins, arguing that Trudeau had stabbed him in the back, the president calling uh, the Canadian prime minister, again, one of our nation's closest allies, as weak. In addition, at the end of all this, President Trump also said that he thinks that Russia should be included back into the group, to the original G8, and that was met with a lot of skepticism from other members of the G7. Angela Merkel specifically said, hey, they got kicked out. They don't belong here. We don't want them again. That's right. The Russians were kicked out of what was then known as the G8 when the Russians annexed Crimea, which was considered a hostile action by the world. That decision by Vladimir Putin to take over that piece of land. Donald Trump said, oh, we should let him back in. That received uh, strong opposition, not just from other G7 members, but also from the president's own party. Quite a few Republicans saying that the Russians do not belong in the G7 that they still not uh, have left the annexed portion of Crimea and that revoking their punishment at this point would be a slap in the face to the world leaders, especially as Donald Trump is escalating hostilities with our allies. And as big as the G7 was, you know, trade will continue to be a discussion for some time. We're heading into another historic meeting between the president and Kim Jong-un. It's going to be happening later tonight. They're meeting in Singapore. The goal is the denuclearization of North Korea. There's a lot of concerns that Donald Trump could say or do even the tiniest wrong thing that could cause reverberations on the world stage. And people will be watching everything he says and does very closely for that reason. The White House has done um, not a good job of setting expectations. Normally, we would see administrations laying out an idea of what we should define victory as at the end of this 
type of settlement? Is it simply that they sat down to be a victory, that they were able to talk to one another, or do we need to see some type of deal inked and signed? And without that pre-definition of success, we've all waiting to see what exactly they could do and whether or not we can call it a success. And that's still really to be determined. Yeah, the president's going in there. He's leading with his gut. He said last week, you know, it's about an attitude and a willingness to come together for a deal. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens uh, later. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. A lot of other addicts looked in the mirror every day and did not see somebody worth saving. Even at my worst, there was a level of vanity, I guess. I looked in the mirror and saw somebody who, somebody deep in there, regardless of how low I was, my circumstances, I had a high enough opinion of myself that I thought it's worth going forward. Joining us now is Melissa Etihad, reporter for the LA Times. Last week was a tough one. The world lost two well-respected and loved people, uh, fashion designer Kate Spade, and then on Friday, celebrity chef, television host of CNN's Parts Unknown, Anthony Bourdain. As soon as the news hits, you know, especially on CNN, there's going to be an overload of coverage. He was one of their colleagues. He had a show there. But mental health experts were raising concerns about extensive news coverage. The fear is that all of this coverage would lead other people to maybe consider their own thoughts of suicide. And it has a name. It's called Suicide Contagion. What is this about? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, when I spoke to mental health experts last week, I mean, they were very concerned that um, suicide contagion, um, you know, would occur. And that's essentially this process of, you know, when one person who's, you know, let's say a high profile American or a celebrity kills themselves, it could lead to a rise in suicidal behaviors of other vulnerable people. And, you know, essentially that's because you have extensive media coverage and when you have really graphic details and headlines or graphic explanation of how that person committed suicide, um, it could fill in the details of someone who's vulnerable and, you know, who is struggling. Is the thought that we see these people every day on TV and they're famous and accomplished and if they can do it, you know, if they're, they're down in the dumps and in the despair so much that, that they commit suicide that it would lead me to feel the same way? Is is that what it is, or is it something different? So the idea is you have celebrities, and they're sensationalized, right? You you look at them, and they lead this perfect life on the outside, and you know, they have money, and you know they're doing great things, and they can be successful, but you end up feeling like you know the person. And, and that's, you know, essentially what we saw with Anthony Bourdain. I mean, on Friday, everyone woke up in the morning and they had this awful news and the outpour and just grief that people were expressing was almost as if you knew the person. And so that's, you know, that's, that's essentially what happens. You have a person who you think that were on the outside really happy. And I mean, if they can do it, you know, someone else might feel triggered by it. There were some interesting uh, statistics that the CDC just came out with. Um, I think it was just last week about an increase in suicide rates. Right. This report came out just after Kate Spade had killed herself. And what you found in this report is that suicides have increased by more than 30% since 1999. And that's in half the states. You know, now it's the 10th leading cause of death in the nation. And it's steadily rising. And, and you had this come out right after, you know, the death and it has mental you know, health experts even more concerned. 
in terms of like suicide contagion and seeing a spike in suicide rates following the death of these two high profile Americans. Yeah. One of the interesting things also in that report, they said that 54 percent of people who died by suicide did not have a known diagnosed mental health condition. And that's kind of what we see with Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain. Obviously, they you know, they had some of their troubles. Anthony Bourdain was very open about past drug use, but they weren't having, at least very publicly, any type of mental health spats, going crazy mm-hmm. on Twitter or, or in public or anything like that. There was none of that to, at least to the public's eye, give a sense that they were having any problems. When I spoke to mental health experts, they actually brought that up. And it's important as journalists to kind of showcase the um, triumphs of people, especially well-known people who have gone through depression and have come out the other side stronger and who are still able to talk about it and shed light on the difficult process, but also show hope and resilience. So that's why I find like as a reporter, it's really important to to give that hope to people who might be struggling because at the end of the day, that's really what we should be doing as well. Um, And so mental health experts are really trying to emphasize that point. And a lot of the people I spoke to, you know, they were hesitant. They weren't sure if they wanted to talk to me. This was on Friday right after Anthony Bourdain had passed away. And it's this idea of are they going to be perpetuating exactly what they're trying to avoid. But it's this idea of helping people and showcasing and giving voice to those who have gone through it in order to make sure that those people who are vulnerable are, are you know, in a better position to get help and starting that conversation with our friends and family who we might not have had these conversations with. They're, they're not easy conversations. Right. And it's a tough balance, especially in the news industry. These things are newsworthy because these people were famous, were very high profile, and there's public interest. People want to know about it. So it is a delicate balance of not getting too gritty with the details, but also sharing the stories. Absolutely. You know, when Robin Williams passed away, one report showed that there had been a rise in in suicide rates following his death, you know, over the span of a few years, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And then you had Marilyn Monroe, who died in 1962. And the CDC had actually found that there was 12% rise in in suicide after her death. So like you said, you know, it's, it's making sure that as reporters, when we're discussing this, we don't give specifics or we don't write graphic headlines give the basic facts and and we do our job, but we do it with some sensitivity as well. Speaking to this notion of suicide contagion, just after the death of Kate Spade last week, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline reported an increase of 25% in calls. Not necessarily that people were to that point, but at least wanting to get help and uh, at least wanting to do something about it. I did want to share the number real quick for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's one 800 273 8255-1-800-273-8255. It's just very important. If anybody needs help, um, you can reach out there. It's 24 hours a day. It's national, so you can always get some help there. But thank you very much, Melissa Etihad, reporter for the LA Times. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. How many robocalls are these people making in a day? We're talking millions, even in some cases, millions in a minute, millions in an hour. Joining me now is Sarah Krause, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. She writes about the telecom industry. So I love these articles and I also hate these articles. It's a very interesting thing to find out how the process of robocalls work. But I also hate it because they're always winning, even if you do your best to ignore them and not give them the power. And in this case in particular, Robocallers are making money off of you, even if you're ignoring them, 
based off of caller ID. So what is this all about? My story is about landline spam calls specifically, but what it does is, is it's meant to show you how the way caller ID is embedded in the system actually ends up handing some compensation to scammers. So I'll tell you how it works. There are companies that control large blocks of telephone numbers. They sell or lease those out to users, some legitimate, some scammers. The robocaller can purchase numbers from that dealer and then use either virtual call centers or real call centers to blast out millions of scammy calls. When that call comes into a consumer's phone, their phone provider will then ping a database, which is run typically by outside companies to say, hey, who's calling? When that database returns information, the telephone provider pays that database for the information. Now, the tricky thing is when the robocaller has purchased the large block of telephone numbers that they're going to use for their campaign, they typically stuff them with junky information. So like John Smith, or they'll include the address of a strip mall. So there's actual information that they're giving caller ID databases that when your phone provider pings the database, it's going to return a name. And when it does, the caller ID database will collect a payment, usually fractions of a penny, that they then share with the entity that controls the phone number, who then shares some of that with the scammer. So it's a pretty complex chain of events, but basically these fractions of pennies end up flying around and some of them make their way back into the pockets of a scammer. How many robocalls are these people making in a day? We're talking millions. So even in some cases, millions in a minute, millions in an hour. So though it's fractions of pennies that are being passed around, it does add up when you add the volume. And the other thing that I should say to be clear is the biggest win for these scammers is when somebody forks over credit card information or forks over their bank account details. That's what they're really after. Right. But this sort of system that's embedded is just helping to sort of grease the wheels or offset partially offset the cost of that bigger payday. Right. They're making the money when they're not even scamming you, really. This has to do a lot with landlines. There's 121 million landline connections in the United States still. This doesn't necessarily have to do with mobile phones, but still robocalls. They track a lot of these uh, call blocking features. There's nearly 5 billion robocalls being made to cell phones alone. Each quarter. So the Hiya, one of the apps that you can download that helps block some of these calls, they tracked almost 5 billion robocalls made to U.S. cell phones in just the first three months of 2018. That's a huge amount and, and a 10% increase from the same period a year earlier. So the problem is for sure absolutely getting worse. And then one of the things that really bugs me is this whole uh, notion of spoofing. They'll take yes. a they'll take a um, you know an area code that's close to you, and in a lot of cases, this one is the one that's getting me more recently. Is that they'll attach an actual name to it, so it it makes it seem like it might be somebody in your phone book, and it, that's the weirdest one because I'll, I'll pick those up, and that's the worst. So what does the spoofing do? So spoofing, and this is something that's hugely enabled by technology and the ability to make web-based phone calls. But in spoofing, um, you see the, the scammer will sh automatically generate a number that you see, and they'll try to pick an area code that's close to you so that you think, oh, it's a neighbor or, oh, it's a local business. I need to answer that. It's all just technologically enabled where they're faking the number that you're seeing. It's not a legitimate number necessarily that's in service. And so another like frustrating offshoot of that is I've had readers since the story write to me and say, oh, I try to call those people back and yell at them. Well, sometimes the number that is being spoofed is a legitimate number that belongs to someone else. So you're calling someone who didn't call you in the no. first place to yell at them. <laughs> and then now they're getting an angry call. Um, right. And they're saying, wait, wait a second. I never did anything. <laughs> what kind of responsibility do phone companies and even these call centers 
have or are they trying to do something about their involvement in this? I would say that every legitimate business involved in the telephone system says they are trying to do something to cut back on this. And and that brings us to a really important piece of this, which is there are legitimate robocalls that are made. So I think we, we tend to say, okay, all robocalls are terrible and we don't want to receive them. But actually some of them that are either for charitable purposes or political purposes or a doctor's office calling to remind you of an appointment, those are legitimate forms of robocalls. But the challenge is the same infrastructure that's used for those can also be abused by bad actors. And that is part of why it has been hard so far to solve this problem. So a lot of the phone providers now offer free or sort of low cost services to try to block some of them. But there really isn't one thing that you can do that's going to solve the problem. And I know no one likes to hear that. (laughs) So I've I've gotten emails that say, wait, I'm on the do not call list. That list is stupid. It does nothing. Well, that call list is for something that a legitimate business will observe and not call you because of. But a scammer doesn't care about the do not call list. They just want to make money off of you. How do we fight back? A chief among them, don't answer, don't call back. That's a starting point. Um, So yeah, don't answer, don't call back because doing so could indicate that you're a living, breathing person that may answer the phone in the future or be scammable in the future. Put your name on the FTC's do not call registry. It will cut down on legitimate businesses blasting you with unwanted robocalls. You can download a call blocking app. There's some out there like Nomo Robo or Haya. Those are two of the names that you can download on your mobile phone or even on your landline. They keep databases of numbers frequently used for scam calls and they'll block those. They thrive on the getting a critical mass of seeing numbers that are typically used for unwanted robocalls. Call your phone company to see what tools or products they offer to block scam calls. Finally, you can file complaints when you do receive an unwanted call to the FTC and FCC, which also track numbers that are frequently used for unwanted calls. And, and they have the capability to bring enforcement actions against bad actors. Well, the fight continues. We're going to post a link to your article with some good graphs of exactly how this system works and some good tips on how to fight back on this. Sarah Krauss, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. We love the feedback, so don't forget to leave us a comment and give us a rating. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.